0: Welcome to the Public Morality. President Biden recently unveiled a $2.3 trillion infrastructure package. Though support and opposition fell down predictable fault lines, Republicans think it's too expensive and some Democrats think it's not enough. The American Society of Civil Engineers gives America's current infrastructure a C-grade. Regardless of how one feels about the President's proposal, There is a need for infrastructure. Moreover, infrastructure is also a competitive issue, a security issue, as well as an economic issue. To discuss infrastructure, we welcome back economist Dean Baker. Dr. Baker is co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research based in Washington, D.C. Dr. Dean Baker, welcome to The Public Morality.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Okay. Uh, Let's begin our our, our conversation. How are you, sir, how do you define infrastructure?
1: Well, it's it's a good question, and obviously that's been up for debate. There's a a category we could think of as unambiguous infrastructure, roads and bridges. Everyone would agree that's infrastructure. Um, President Biden has also proposed spending on things like fixing water pipes, which, you know, it's kind of mind-boggling. We still have lead pipes, and Uh, We've known for a long time, people shouldn't be drinking water through lead pipes. I think that would be unambiguously infrastructure, at least to me. Um, But again, that's prompted some arguments. He's also talked about broadband. Again, these are all physical items I'm talking about. That's part of his infrastructure. Again, I don't think that should be controversial, but apparently it is to some extent. Now he's gone beyond that to talk about societal support. So childcare, talking about education, free community college, Uh, pre-k universal pre-k home health care for people who have disabilities they're caring for disabled people um, or or for seniors uh, home health care these are are provisions that are needed to allow people to work so we could think of these as being part of the social infrastructure that's certainly how President Biden and the Democrats have proposed it again you could have a big debate on that that strikes me as semantics but this is, we all, I think, recognize how important education is in society, how important it is that we have people to care for for children, uh, seniors, people with disabilities, people who can't care for themselves. And that's essential for us to be able to have an economy. I mean, if we, we expect people to have kids, I mean, people are gonna have kids whether they want to or not, but we expect people have kids. they If they wanna be able to work, someone has to care for those kids. That's just kind of common sense. And of course, we increasingly have the problem as people are living longer lives, that many people have disabled uh, relatives, family members, and parents. Those people need care, too. So, again, we can make this a semantic issue, but the idea that we need supports to allow for the economy to function, allow people to be able to work, that seems straightforward to me.
0: And when you you began your answer, you talked about some of those physical needs uh, anywhere from roads and bridges to broadband. On on those issues, the first piece of your definition – how many of those are, are, we, are we close to a a, a, uh, a breaking point? Well, in terms of, you
1: know, roads and bridges, we know there's been inadequate maintenance for years and years. And we hear stories. There was just the story of a, a bridge into Arkansas that it is no longer functional. They had to shut it down, and that created huge congestion because, you know, people couldn't get over the bridge. They have to find alternative routes. Uh, A few years back, there was a bridge in uh, Minnesota that collapsed, and I forget, I think it was 16 people died, a horrible, horrible incident. So we're seeing those sorts of things all the time. Uh, Can we keep going without addressing it? Sure, it just means that you'll have more bridges breaking, uh, you know, unfortunately, I'm sure some fatalities, uh, mostly congestion, inconvenience. So you could continue with the neglect for a long time, but that's not a good story. And if we want to talk about you know, modernizing the economy, preparing for the future. We want our bridges. We want our roads. We want the infrastructure to be up to par. And and in many cases, it clearly is not. Hmm.
0: Um, From your perspective, given the work that you do as an economist, what are some of the uh, key features for you in Biden's um, uh, $2.3 trillion plan?
1: Well, I, I'm very pleased to see, you know, the advances in looking at home health care and, and child care. These are these are hugely important issues, particularly for women, because they generally get the they're, they're stuck with the caregiving responsibilities. I mean, that's just the reality. We could argue whether it's good or bad, but that that is the reality. Most often it's women that are, are left caring for the kids or if there's a. Uh, disabled family member or a uh, parent um, it's, it's women that are, are stuck with that so i think this is a really big thing in terms of giving women more ability to work pursue careers and again we know there's this big wage gap women make less money than men they're less able to fully pursue their careers if they choose to and this is a really really big factor so that i'm very very happy to see also he's got an ambitious agenda on climate we've been neglectful there even you know we can uh, blame Trump, obviously, he, he quite openly said he didn't care, so I'm not putting words in his mouth. He, he was not concerned about climate change. Um, under President Obama, he did take some important initiatives, but uh, again, not nearly enough. And now President President Biden is looking in, in a very big way to move us to clean energy, move us to electric cars. And, and this is really, really important. Arguably, it doesn't go far enough, but I see this as a really important first step. So, those are areas I look to and am and, and very happy to see them in, in his agenda.
0: Now, every president this century has, at least rhetorically, uh, proclaimed some need for infrastructure. Everyone seems to be for it, you know, especially in theory, but we've been unable to get a comprehensive bill through. Um, and what's been the hang up? And I, and I pose that, sir, because I think I wrote my first infrastructure column back in the mid 90s
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it's been a while um no as well uh president clinton was going to have uh, ambitious uh, infrastructure um put a little money into it but it was very very limited the big issue with uh president clinton was uh budget deficits he, he he himself said he wanted to cut the deficit in half his 92 campaign and then quickly said well we have to get to a balanced budget by the year 2000 so that left very little money, and and again, in fairness, of course, regardless of what he wanted to do or didn't want to do, after 94, he had a Republican Congress, so he had to negotiate with them, and they weren't anxious to have a lot of spending infrastructure. Um, President Bush put a little money in, again, uh, concerns ostensibly about the budget deficit, he did have a big increase in military spending, of course, with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan um, and, and the tax cuts. And so if you're concerned about budget deficits, which at least there was some claim he was, uh, that meant little money for infrastructure. President Obama came in, in of course, the middle of the Great Recession, and there he sort of combined his infrastructure plans with his stimulus package so if you go back to 2009 he had about a 770 billion dollar stimulus package um a lot of that was money trying to get money out the door immediately to, to counteract the great recession and then there was some money for for longer term infrastructure the money there for longer term infrastructure i think was very limited though so most of this appropriately was focused on Getting money out the door quickly, trying to turn around. At that time, we were losing seven or eight hundred thousand jobs a month, so it was really important to turn the economy around. And he did, you know, not as quickly I think as anyone would like, but he did turn the economy around, stop the freefall. Um, but that meant there wasn't very much for infrastructure, so it's always been on people's agenda, on presidents' agendas but not high enough. And again, there's always gonna be other concerns and the deficit, unfortunately unfortunately, to my mind, I think has been too big a concern in people's minds. And I think uh, in, in President Biden's case, I mean, he is proposing tax increases to largely offset the spending, but the big thing that he did that sort of changed the nature of the debate was he had his rescue plan separately. So as soon as he comes into office, he's got okay, I have my big rescue p- package, I think is 1.9 trillion, if I remember the number correctly that's to turn the economy around. Now we're going to focus on infrastructure. So I think it was very good that he separated those issues both because it was urgent to do something as soon as he came into office to boost the economy, but secondly it gives us more chance to consider, okay, let's have a, a infrastructure package, let's debate where it should be and I mean we'll see whether he gets it through or not, but mm-hmm. you know, I think this was the right way to go about it.
0: And, and speaking of just raising that question about about infrastructure, could you talk about infrastructure beyond being roads and bridges, but but how it is a competitive issue, uh, a security issue, as well as an economic issue?
1: Well, if we want to have a modern economy, we need an infrastructure that's up to par. And, you know, when you look at things like education, if you go back 50 years or so, we were the world leaders in education. So we had the largest share of our, our population uh, getting high, high school degrees. You know, at that time, that was still... It wasn't an exception, but I mean we were ahead of European countries, Japan, and percent that got high school degrees, college degrees. We really stood out that way. That's no longer true. Um, we've really fallen behind a number of other countries. So we're not we're not the world leader in education. So there it's it's standard, you know, as here for people to get High school degrees, but they often get uh, technical training beyond that. And many countries are equal to us in, ch- in terms of the number of people who get college degrees. So, so we're not a standout that way. And then also going the other direction, uh, preschool. There's a lot of research showing how important uh, preschool is for for basically getting students up to speed so that they could. Um, you know, learn basically once they get to first grade second grade third grade and you know basically be productive and this makes the biggest difference in in uh, in the case of children from low and moderate income families many of whom don't have the same advantages from people say from more upper middle class families so this is a big deal about having you know really a, a workforce with the skills that they need to be competitive with Europe Japan China whatever whatever it might be the other part of the story in terms of, you know, national security, it's sort of interesting because the highway system back in the 50s was actually sold, at least in part. I mean, everyone understood it had advantages beyond national security. But part of that story was national security, that if we're attacked, we're at war, we have to be able to move things quickly from one place to another. So the highway system was actually uh, considered part of national defense. Um, so. Uh, when we think of national security today, of course, we just had the attack on the, the pipeline, the colonial pipeline that shut down uh, oil to much of the East Coast for about a week or so. I don't know if the shortages, I'm not in the East Coast anymore. I don't know if the shortages have been fully alleviated yet. Hopefully that will be soon. But we see that's the sort of thing we have to be prepared for. Earlier, the, the solar winds attack that's attributed to Russia. Um, again, you know, we need that. That's part of our infrastructure. So we need to make sure that our computer systems are secure. We're, we're totally dependent on the web these days, and that's you know great. I mean, obviously enormous, enormous advantages, but if our lines aren't secure, if we all could have just our, our, our information stolen, corrupted, have all our work destroyed, that's really, really bad story. So that's a really important aspect of infrastructure, and that's very much national security.
0: Now, uh, correct me if, uh, if I'm wrong about this, but I believe it was about two years ago, President Trump and the Democrats agreed to a $2 trillion infrastructure plan um, that was ultimately held up because um, Trump held it up, President Trump held it up because he wanted Democrats to stop investigating him, I I, mean, I am not making that up, uh, but... You look at Biden's $2.3 trillion plan is is more than what Trump and the Democrats agreed with, but it's less than uh, American society, society of Engineers want, civil, civil engineers, um, what they want, and it's less than some on um, President uh, Biden's left flank want. So um, from your perspective, I mean, is, is this 2.3 about where we should be uh, right now i mean knowing that more needs to be done
1: well i guess i've been around washington i'm not washington now but I've been around washington long enough to go okay you're not going to get what you want so the question is is this a big step forward and i think the answer certainly is yes and i guess i'm of the view that get get a foot in the door cuz you know people sometimes talk about this this is spending over eight years that's really important i think a lot of people hear you know 2.3 trillion and go oh my god that's a lot of money it is a lot of money but it's much less money over eight years you know it's less than 1% gdp over that period which again is 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 a big number but it, it's it, it's much much smaller over eight years than over say one year but the point here is once you get a foot in the door you do, and people see the benefits then it's possible to get more to so think about things you know some many of the issues that have been raised how much will it take to really get a clean economy um president biden's been very good saying oh when i hear uh climate change i think jobs and you know that should be how we think about it because yeah it's going to take a lot of people to put in solar panels retrofit our buildings build the electric cars you know all these things those are jobs I think a lot of people, they hear Biden say that and they go, well, that's nice. But, you know, I don't know what that means. Well, when you see the jobs, people will know what that means. So I think the important thing is to get the foot in the door. And again, this is an eight year agenda. But, you know, come a year, two, three years out and people see, hey, this is a good thing. We're creating jobs. We're cleaning up the environment. It will be possible to get more. So I think we do need more. I, you know, what I've seen certainly, you know, on the issue of getting a clean, uh, clean economy. Uh, economy, you know, moving to clean energy, we will need a lot more, but this is a huge foot in the door.
0: Hmm. I'm speaking with Dr. Dean Baker, who is co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, and we're discussing President Biden's recent infrastructure proposal. And uh, Dr. Baker, you know, I I was recently listening to an interview with uh, West Virginia's Republican Senator um, Shelley Moore Capito, and Uh, And she stated that she was prepared uh, to support what has been understood. You talked about earlier that traditional infrastructure, but saw a portion of the president's proposal not fitting with her understanding of traditional infrastructure. My question, because of years of neglect, uh, along with the realities of a changing world, not to mention a global pandemic, can we afford to simply maintain that traditional understanding of infrastructure as one of roads and bridges?
1: I would say certainly not. I mean, it's kind of striking if you look at take the case of education um we consciously decided that everyone was going to be able to get a free high school education i mean it was done mostly at the state level but i i'm not sure i couldn't give you the dates on it but every state in the country now allows they pay for free education through high school and in many cases it's it's required so that was that was an extension of education that was done you know everywhere universally and the idea that okay we did that let's say 70 years ago, again, we could check the dates on when the last state, you know, made uh, universal. But why we would think that that was okay for 70 years ago and that's still okay now, that we shouldn't expect more education now. I mean, that's just, yeah, I don't really understand the logic. I mean, I assume Senator Caputo is okay with Man, or not mandatory free education through high school but I don't understand like somehow we've done violates one of our morals if we say okay we're going to extend that through community college I don't I don't I can't quite understand that logic and clearly many people need education beyond high school to you know fully utilize their their capacities their abilities um, in terms of uh, clean energy moving to clean energy it's just kind of okay. We needed highways because we had cars before we had cars, we didn't need highways. Well, now we have a problem of global warming, and we can't wish that away. It's not, it's really not an option. So, we built highways because we want people to be able to use cars That's kind of common sense. Um, but now we have global warming. So, I don't, I don't really understand. Uh, you know again the logic I don't I shouldn't just blame senator Caputo, but uh, republicans in general are like oh we're not going to talk about it, we're not going to do anything about it it's it, it's here and we have to deal with that reality so it was fine not to deal with global warming you know 50 60 years ago and could say it wasn't a problem but it is a problem now so i don't I, I don't see how we i don't see we have an alternative we have to be serious about
0: it um mm. uh, on, on that note though following up where does china loom in this whole uh and America's infrastructure needs?
1: Well, I think it's unfortunate that this has often been portrayed as being competitive with China, because obviously we are going to compete with China in many areas, but we also should be looking to cooperate with them in areas. And, uh, you know, again, President Biden has said, well, if we're going to be competitive with China, we need to have better education. We need to have top-notch infrastructure. That's all true. I mean, if we want to be able to sell our products in the world market and be able to, to compete uh, beat China in in different areas. Sure, we need we need to have well educated workforce. We need to have a top notch infrastructure, but we also should be looking to cooperate in a lot of areas. And in particular, I'm thinking of you know obviously climate. The other one that should be front and center is health. Uh, we should be it's 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 in both cases. We benefit from their knowledge. They benefit from ours. And we should be looking to cooperate, not to compete. And uh, I mean, this has been kind of painful for me because one of the things I've been doing some work on is the issue of how we can get the world vaccinated against the, the pandemic. And China has effective vaccines. They don't seem to be as effective as our, our mRNA vaccines, the ones produced by Moderna and Pfizer. But they do seem to be quite effective, roughly the same categories, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, two good vaccines. and They should be part of the plan to get the world vaccinated. I'm just mentioning this because I'd say this is enormous potential for gain by cooperation. We should be figuring out, okay, how do we vaccinate the world? If China could produce more of its vaccines, fantastic. How can we produce more of our vaccines and figure out what we could do to remove the roadblocks that are preventing both of us from producing more vaccines so we can get the world vaccinated? So that's all a long-winded answer, but my point is, yeah, we're going to compete with China in many areas, and that's fine and good, and hopefully we'll win in many areas, but we also should be looking to cooperate. So it's not just that they're an enemy, that uh, we should be looking to cooperate where we can.
0: Hmm. Oh, by, by the way, uh, on the public rally, sir, we like long-winded answers because some things just cannot be uh, condensed to a soundbite. So we appre- we appreciate the detailed answers. Okay, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, I want to take a... Uh... <sighs> Uh, I'm speaking with Dr. Dean Baker, co-founder of the Center for uh, Economic Policy Research, uh, and we're discussing President Biden's infrastructure proposal. Uh, Dr. Baker, is there, in your view, enough support for the president's plan to get passed? And I ask that because we've sort of talked about, you know, that um, those many on the right Think it's too much and th- and there's even some on the presidents left who, who don't think it's enough so i mean is, is there enough to get what, what you refer to as a great first step is there enough to get this great first step past
1: uh, that's a really good question and i, I guess we're going to find out in a couple months so it's clear that the plan is very popular not necessarily in all the specifics but it's been polled repeatedly and it's hugely popular among democrats and it scores very well among independents 60 70 percent and even among republicans a large majority of republicans support it so among the country as a whole it does very very well but then who's actually voting on it well members of congress members of the senate and there you don't have a lot of republicans who are prepared to say okay i'm on board Um, President Biden has made a big point of saying, okay, I'm happy to talk and he has been meeting with Republican members of the House and Senate and we'll see if he could get the big issue of course is the Senate where he needs 60 votes uh, to get through a filibuster and that would mean 10 Republicans. So the question is, can he get 10 Republicans on board? And just, you know, again, largely speculative, I don't have inside knowledge. Um, I think it's possible that he could get 10 Republicans on board for some version of this. So presumably, you know, again, picking on Senator Caputo again, uh, some version of sort of more traditional infrastructure, roads and bridges. I can't imagine he's going to say, okay, that's it. That's all we're going to get. So then the question is, can they get the rest of it through a package that they could do with reconciliation. That's a vote that they just need the 50 votes in the Senate, and then the uh, Vice President Harris would cast the deciding vote. So my guess, and again, just a guess, is that he might be able to get a package that will have 10 Republicans on board, Republican senators, that he could get through over the filibuster that will just be narrow infrastructure roads bridges maybe they'll have broadband i don't know you know maybe they'll have some other things in there but relatively narrow infrastructure and then he'll come back with a, a different package and look to get that through the reconciliation process which would need all 50 democrats in the senate that's going to be a problem but i think in principle possible and then uh, sent, uh, Vice President Harris casting the deciding vote.
0: Mm-hmm. And fo- fo- following up on that, what's your response to those who offer that within this package, um, the the legitimate infrastructure needs only represent roughly 25%, and the rest is just fluff? This is sort of partly in what you were addressing in your recent piece. Yeah,
1: well, it's the, the idea that uh preschool is fluff that uh paying for for community college is fluff i i, I just find it hard to accept and again if we go back through history if we we're having this argument 70 80 years ago we're gonna have universal high school pay for everyone's high school would that be fluff i, I don't think anyone i don't think any politician would want to get up in the house and senate and say oh paying for high school paying for everyone's high school is fluff i don't think they'd want to say that and so i just don't really see the basis for that so we have Parts of this program, the 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 uh, universal pre-K, child care, uh, home health care, these are, these are things people need if they want. You know, again, you know, one of the issues I'm going back to. If you go back to the '90s, we we're talking about the '90s earlier, back in the '90s. But uh, President Clinton's welfare reform, uh, it was going to be okay. Everyone's going to work, and part of the story was that we have to make it possible for them to work. And that meant having child care. It meant having, if you have uh, disabled family members or, or parents that you're caring for, it means home health care. So back then there were a lot of people prepared to say, okay, we want people to work. Now that was punitive in ways I'm not going to defend, but I'll certainly defend the positive aspect that we want people to be able to work. And that means giving them the care they need for their kids, for their parents or or a disabled family member where it's needed. So I don't I don't understand calling that fluff. I mean, I understand that as the political argument, but as as a serious argument, I, I just don't see that these are real needs that people have.
0: Well, I'd like to have you respond to a, a, a specific plank in the proposal that, that some on the uh, in opposition have taken direct aim at. Um, you know, there, there are some who do offer that the $400 billion for home health care is not infrastructure. How would you respond? You've sort of touched on it, but expand on how you would respond to why that is infrastructure.
1: Well, again, this is about giving people the ability to work. And again, we focused on this at the other end with child care and preschool um, that will allow many uh, parents of young children to be able to work. But we know that the problems go beyond that. And particularly with an aging society, many, much more often it's going to be the case that, say you have a couple where one of them is disabled and needs someone to care for them. Or, of course, many people, they they're, they have the responsibility of caring for an uh, older parent who's not able to care for themselves. And as we age as a society, that's going to be a greater and greater problem going forward. So I I have a hard time seeing this as frivolous. I I just, uh, you know, and again, it's kind of striking to me that you have politicians saying this because, you know, it's not, I don't think there's many people that don't know someone in that situation. You know, someone who has a family member that they have to care for. Now, maybe some of them are able to pay for it out of their pocket and could have someone uh, care for that person. But in a lot of cases, people have to give up jobs or work part-time when they want to work full-time. I mean, that's a reality. So this isn't something that, President Biden is inventing as some grand wish list. Oh, wouldn't this be nice? This is a reality for millions and millions of people.
0: Hmm. Um, Are there? I'm going to tap into your your your, uh, background and as an economist, are there certain industries um, that would benefit greater than others from what President Biden is proposing?
1: oh sure um certainly uh the clean energy sector is 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 really going to be booming from this um, i think at the end of the day the auto industry will be benefited now you know obviously we're our auto industry has not been a leader in electric vehicles but that that will change presumably with this going forward um we will see more child care i mean again that's you know a sector that has been largely neglected people are poorly paid in it uh, i expect that both the, the number of people working child care and and hopefully the quality of jobs will improve radically um, and same in home health care you know so so again those those will all benefit I expect also sectors like tech will benefit because having more broadband uh, we, we have people who could be doing broadband who could be doing tech I should say uh, mm-hmm. but are, are prevented from because they don't have access to good broad- broadband and of course you can have a more diversified tech sector I mean one of the issues that has come up with the pandemic is that we've seen a lot of people of course moving away from the traditional sectors uh tech tech centers uh the um say from silicon valley and other places that where the tech sector has been dominant to other parts of the country where they might have family ties and of course the the cost of living is much much lower and to my view that's a great development and you know that it will benefit the tech sector and really benefit the country i mean it's it's you know, it, we it, we we shouldn't want our whole tech sector to be in Silicon Valley. And I understand it's not, but I mean, it, to have that spread out through the country, um, that that's a really positive thing, and more widespread availability of broadband will really will really benefit the the sector that way.
0: Hmm. In in the piece that you wrote recently um, on on infrastructure, you, you, you cited that uh, Germany, France, other countries have surpassed United States in women's employment. Talk about the reasons for that phenomenon and and also also include in your answer, please, why that is significant.
1: Yeah, for years the United States was a world leader in the, the share of women who, who were in the workforce. And we looked to that as oh, that's because we have a more open city, women have more opportunities, they're they're better able to work. So that was true through the 70s, 90s. Um, I think most people saw that as a good thing. Obviously, not everyone, perhaps, but most people saw it as a good thing. That no longer was true in, in beginning of in the 2000s and the 2010s, when a number of countries, originally it was the, the Nordic countries, Denmark, Sweden, they passed us in women's uh, employment. But now even uh, Japan, for example, which we don't think of as a place that... Um, is a very strong feminist stronghold a very traditional society still in many ways Um, so that's largely when you look at the countries that have moved past us it's been overwhelmingly countries that have had good child care systems so again it's the story that women who generally have the child care primary responsibilities for child care in the united states that's a really real big impediment to for them working countries that made a big point to providing good child care it's it's they're, they're better able to work so that's clearly a very very big part of the picture and in terms of why it's a good thing I mean it's you know people sometimes say oh you think everyone should work no I think everyone should have the option to work you know this is and you know it's both in terms of you know fulfilling for themselves that uh, they, they want to do more than say just care for their kids or care for Uh, a sick relative or whatever they want to do more than that. But it's, of course, good for the economy. I mean, we can think of if you envision the economy we had 40, 50, 60 years ago, where women were shut out of most professions, we would be denying ourselves a huge amount of talent. So it's really both sides of that. And we should want everyone to be able to have fulfilling work, fulfilling work, fulfilling careers. But we benefit, we'd be putting ourselves at an enormous disadvantage in a country if we said, okay, here's half the workforce, and they're either only going to be relegated to relatively menial jobs or not be able to work at all. So we benefit from having society be as open as possible, and certainly that means to women.
0: And and I know I'm probably guilty of oversimplifying the the contrarian argument here, but there are some who say that from a tax standpoint— that uh, President Biden's uh, infrastructure proposal takes money away from the productive side of the ledger by way of taxes and using the federal government as a pass-through to fund things that aren't necessary. The fear being this will not create jobs, but will slow down the economy. And I'm sure you have some thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, basically President Biden has proposed to pay for this with taxes on the highest income people and uh, raising the corporate income tax. Now, in both cases, it's just reversing tax cuts that were put in place under President Trump. So we always get this story that when when uh, you have a republican who wants to cut taxes that's going to give all this great incentive to our corporations to invest and for wealthy people to work harder and then when a democrat wants to to raise the taxes on high-end people that oh now they're going to lose the incentive What we've run this test, I mean, it's you you could go, you know, the the first time we did, of course, we'll maybe go further back, but let's just say Reagan is the first one. Um, There was no investment boom. I mean, the economy did well under Reagan. We can go, that's a longer story, but there was no investment boom. I mean, I know the data well. You'd have to really beat it up uh, pretty hard to try and come up with any sort of story about an investment boom. So the story that if we gave more, that we'd get all this work from wealthy people, all this investment, it just isn't there so again I, i'm happy to take that seriously and listen to it and say let's look at the evidence and at this point we have gobs and gobs and gobs of evidence we don't have to worry that we're somehow going to take away the incentive for high-income people to work and for corporations to invest
0: mm. well, um, and i say this knowing that in our public discourse it's, it's usually the the, the, the the side in the minority who is becomes most concerned about the deficit. But um, I don't have a dog in that race, so I'm gonna ask you, uh, Dr. Baker and economists, what about the deficit vis-a-vis, not only the COVID relief plan, but also this uh, $2.3 trillion package as well? I mean, assuming it were passed.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a reasonable question to ask, and I think actually more so with the original COVID relief package. So we are throwing a lot of money into the economy. And you've had a lot of economists, including you know many I take good, you know think of as good serious economists, people like Larry Summers, who I know and I consider a good economist. Don't agree with them on everything, but certainly a good economists. They've raised concerns about that, and I think that's reasonable. Um, I think they're overstated, and I think we'll be okay with the deficits that we're running in, in 2021, 2022, which is when that money will be spent. Um, the package, the 2.3 trillion package that, that President Biden's putting forward, again, that's over eight years. So that will increase the deficit some, but not a huge amount, not worried that we're going to have deficits that are so large that they could cause real harm to the economy. So the real issue when we're talking about deficits, at least to me, the real issue is, are we pushing the economy so hard that we're likely to see serious problems with inflation? And again there's we will see some issues with inflation we you know we got the price the prices from uh, april the price data from april it did show high inflation i mean it wasn't a surprise because we're, we're coming off of a pandemic but that's the sort of thing that i think is a, a realistic concern again i think it's manageable but if you look further out i don't think there's a lot of risk say 223 224 that if congress were to approve uh, president biden's package that we're likely to have a big problem with inflation i just think that that that's not likely to be an issue
0: now, predictably, and this has this has been an argument in my view that has that started with the Franklin uh, Roosevelt administration, uh, and that being the claims of so- socialism. And my, my my question to you is: Is there a democratic, a functioning democratic society that does not, to some degree, rely on socialist principles?
1: Well, it's it's odd how that term gets thrown around as a pejorative so we have programs that are socialist social democratic that almost everyone values i'm thinking medicare and social security i mean that that's you can go among republicans and they'll get 80 90 percent approval no, no no republican politician is going to get up there and say i want to get rid of social security i want to get rid of medicare same thing with public education you know are we going to get rid of uh, tell parents that they have to pay for their kids' education, you know, through, you know, grade school and high school. So so these are, are, these are public goods that almost everyone agrees that the government is best to provide them. So where you draw the line, we could argue, you know, and obviously we do argue, but the idea that somehow, oh, that's socialist, we can't talk about it, that, that's just absurd. I mean, again, we should have a debate, you know, okay, do we want to extend free education through community college backwards to pre kindergarten, perfectly appropriate to debate that. I mean, that that's what, you know, that's what politics should be about. But to just say, oh, that's socialist, we can't talk about it. That's nonsense.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, it's part of the tension, uh, in your view, sir, uh, competing definitions on infrastructure. President Biden is obviously expanding the definition of in- infrastructure based on um, the perceived realities of the 21st century, while others are are insisting on a more uh, traditional view, i.e., roads and bridges, or bridges, or is that just an argument in your view to to do nothing?
1: I think it's an argument to do nothing, because again, it's it's you want to call it infrastructure you don't want to call it infrastructure the question is okay do we want to have broadband you don't want to call it infrastructure fine let's have the argument Do you want to have broadband um, should we extend our, our, our schooling to cover uh, pre-k to cover community college again you don't want to call it infrastructure that's fine but l- let's have that discussion so to, to act like okay we're going to dismiss this because these are not traditional infrastructure and again I don't know how you know, where is it written, what is, and what isn't in traditional infrastructure in any case? I was making the point earlier, before we had cars, it would have been silly to talk about high, you know, about highways as infrastructure, because what would that mean? You know, what who, who's going to be using the highways? So once you get cars, then you need highways. You know, so again, it's, uh, the, what counts as infrastructure is going to change as society changes.
0: Hmm. You know, I, I want to harken back uh, to the Affordable Care Act and the run-up to the Affordable Care Act, and... And in my view, uh, President Obama did not use the full weight of the Oval Office to sell the benefits to the American people. And as a result, uh, at least to me, his opposition um, sort of defined or defined what that policy is going to be, at least before it was uh, uh, rolled out. And to have the type of infrastructure plan commensurate with the country's needs, as you just articulated, does, does does President Biden need to do more than send emissaries between the White House and Capitol Hill? Uh, uh, does this need to be taken to the American people so that the, you know so it's not defined by the opposition on what infrastructure would be?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think he's done some of this, but he'll clearly have to do more. So he has to. People have to understand that. Okay we're talking about uh, everyone having access to low cost broadband and again that that shouldn't be to my view at least a controversial proposition after the pandemic as we know how many people were really you know disconnected because they they had real problems their kids couldn't go to school or get learn you know they because they they didn't have access to broadband and that that's a huge huge deal um the electric vehicles you know again they that uh, we, there's jobs there uh, President present saying that but to, point to, you know, where this has been successful. I mean, one of the stories that um, has come out a little bit, but I, I remember back when President Obama had his clean energy uh, agenda, people made a big issue of Solyndra, which was a solar um, solar panel manufacturer that went bankrupt. They got a government loan, hundreds of millions, I forget the exact sum, not huge in the scheme of things, but in any case, they, they went bankrupt, they didn't repay their loan. Well, one of the other companies that got a loan was Tesla which is now one of the most valuable companies in the world. So um, that would be a good thing for President Biden to tout. To that, look, this isn't this isn't uh, pie in the sky. This isn't throwing money in the garbage can. We have very successful companies that are employing people that make a product people like. And if we go further down this route, we'll have a lot more. So he has to convince people. And I think it's clearly doable. I mean, people understand these things. He just has to make a point. Here's what's on the agenda. And, you know, you're 100% right on President Obama and the Affordable Care Act. I mean, I was pulling my hair out of what I have left. Uh, you know, you have to tell people, here's what's there. and. Uh, I I know so many people were dismissive and people didn't even understand the exchanges. Well, the reason we have the exchanges is because President Obama created the Affordable Air Act. And now, you know, if you lose your job and you lost your insurance, you can get through the exchange. Now, it's not as cheap as it should be. That was an issue. But if you had a a pre-existing condition, it was a hell of a lot cheaper than if we didn't have the exchanges. So, yeah, it is really important that he sells it with the American people, not just try to twist some arms on Capitol Hill.
0: Dr. Dean Baker, thank you so much, sir, for uh, once again lending us your wisdom on the public morality. Much appreciate it.
1: Thanks lot for having me on. I really enjoyed it.
0: The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B Y R O N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes. SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) Me, <laughs>